Here it is, brothers and sisters. The full gospel. Because we've talked about it a lot up until this point, and it wasn't even exactly the point of the sermon series that we began, but nevertheless, it is fundamental, foundational, and important. The full gospel. Now, that could be confused with sort of a charismatic rendering of what the full gospel actually means, which in essence, that came around about the mid-19th century where uh, some, some evangelical type of charismatics began to believe that the full gospel meant that you needed to be performing miracles, speaking in tongues, and acting in the Spirit, that that's, that's the full gospel. Well, I disagree, and today I want to talk about what the full gospel really is, because we've outlined it, we've identified it, we've talked about the components, we've, we've added the kingdom, we've said it, repent, the kingdom of heaven has drawn near, we've described it, centered it in the kingdom, in Israel, but what do we do with that? What does that translate to in action? And you may need to take some notes today, and I have a lot of notes, but I'm going to make this very, very relevant and with God's help, interesting and memorable so that when you leave here, you'll have a new understanding of your relationship with God and what you're called to. This is application. When you live for God, it's application. It's not just an idea. It's not just philosophy. It's not a theory, and it is most definitely not just a decision that you make one day. You don't walk up an aisle and make a decision, and that's how this works. That's the formula. That's not the full gospel. I'm reading a book called Revelation After Supersessionism, which surely will make its way into some series, maybe this one, or, but it's a tremendous book by a guy named Ralph Corner, very deep scholar, one of the people that I have to read the pages like four or five times each page. So maybe by 2025, I'll have the book completed and we can do a series on Revelation After Supersessionism, but supersessionism just means replacement theology. That's the nice theological term for it. But Ralph Corner makes a really interesting point that I think a lot of people should understand in our, in our um, segregated, and I don't mean racial segregation, in our segregated world that we live in where I have my job, I have my family, I have my hobbies, and I have my God, I have my religion, and each one lives in a little file folder and God forbid church and state ever meet, and God forbid my, re- my religion ever interact with my other parts of things. Well, in the first century, that was, there was no such thing. Religion, as a word, didn't exist. Religion was, uh, well, well, first off, what is religion? Today we define it as the belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal god or gods. That's kind of a weird definition, but it's also a particular system of faith and worship. But as I said, in antiquity, this didn't work. To describe Judaism as a religion is completely anachronistic. One of my favorite words. That means we take something that happened hundreds of years later and apply it back to a time it was not relevant. Anachronistic. Judaism was not a religion, and Dr. Corner explains this. The world was not religious as opposed to secular. All of ancient life was inextricably woven with religiosity. 
God was all-consuming in your life. And so the gospel, the elementary principles, life dedicated to Messiah, was not your religion. It was your being. It was your way of life. It was what you walked with all the time. And so the gospel... You know, we can't, we can't say that that's religious. It's a, it's a call. It's a way of being. So when Yeshua issues a call to repent for the kingdom has come near, it's on the brink of arrival. That is, it's, it's so much more than a decision. Have you made a decision for Christ? I make a lot of decisions for Christ. I don't follow through with a lot of them, unfortunately. It is a call to conversion. Now, I want to explain that word to you because conversion has a really, really funky uh, interpretation. Jews, when they become believers, are told to convert to Christianity. Okay? To convert to Christianity. That means that I no longer am Jewish. I'm now a Christian. That's the conversion. We, t- we hear about the most famous conversion of all. Where did it happen and who was it? Paul, whose name isn't really Paul. His name is Saul, Shaul, and it happened on the road to Damascus. Was it a conversion? Did he leave his Judaism behind? Not in the traditional interpretation of the word, it's not a conversion. But we need to understand that his call to conversion meant to the people he gave it to, because think about this. Think about this. If we really want to understand the Bible, if we want to understand the Gospel, if we want to understand the words we say, we believe and read, we need to understand it as the people it was spoken to understood it. There is a tendency to take things that don't apply and apply them universally in all through the Bible that happens. Pastors like to say, don't harm my anointed, and and apply it to themselves. I'm the anointed of God. I'm speaking lessons and messages. Don't don't speak ill of me. Don't meddle in the congregation and make problems. Who are the anointed that that Scripture speaks of? Don't mess with my anointed. He's talking about Israel, not pastors in the 21st century. But, but, and I want to draw on this this book. I'm going to draw on it some today. This is something that we must, must remember as we read and study the Bible. The ethic of Jesus, his call to conversion in particular, was directed to a particular people, that is Israel, in a particular context in the land of Israel at a particular time prior to the destruction of the temple. What we know as the gospel What we have talked about and defined as the gospel, believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and go to heaven, that came way later. Way later. And the truth is, the Romans road that we've talked about along the way, that wasn't really in mind either. And here's what had to happen, and here's what changed things from this. When you have a 
collection of religious leaders who don't have any mooring, they don't have any anchor to the original context of what the message was, who it was spoken to, where it was spoken to them, and why. What you have to do is when you create a theology that you can get a world behind, an empire behind, all of Rome and all of the pagans, what you have to do, if you don't have that in the frame, you take your bow back and you shoot the arrow, regardless of where the bullseye is. If the true gospel is in the middle of the bullseye, just shoot the thing and then go over there and take a can of spray paint and write the bullseye around it. And that's how we got where we are. That is, in essence, what had to happen. So today's idea of conversion to Christ is that you are desperately wicked, filthy, lower than slime, human, and have lower than, lower than human almost, and have been that way since the day you were born. You have no good to offer without Jesus. You're going to go to hell because you were damned by default the moment you took your first breath on this earth, but you can change that. You can go through a conversion. You can confess your sins, believe in Jesus, become a Christian, and you will go to heaven. Now, I want you to listen to what I'm about to say carefully. This is Scott McKnight. He's a theology professor. He's a pastor. He wrote this book called A New Vision for Israel. And I'm going to quote him a couple of times because it's a really tremendous book, although I haven't finished it completely. Because most of the books I read, I get about two-thirds of the way through and say, ah, got to talk about that, and then never get to the end. But listen to what Dr. Scott McKnight says, and you got to hear me carefully. Many of those whom Jesus called and who followed him would not be classified as wicked in Judaism, and so his call to conversion amounted to more than a call to turn from wickedness and concrete sins. Well, he said, I didn't come for the righteous, I came for the sick. I'm not here for the good, I'm here for the sinners. He said that. I know, but, but, but and, and, and listen to this, because this is, this is what I want you to hear so carefully about the full gospel. Jesus did not call upon people to admit a personal fallenness or to confess being marked by original sin, but to identify with the national condition. Hear that word, national condition, to accept God's word on that condition and to live appropriately before God. In other words, what I'm telling you and what Dr. Nike's telling you there, original sin, you got to chuck that out. It's not real. The event, the fact that Adam fell, and we're going to talk about this extensively next week when we look at repentance from dead works. I'm not suggesting Adam didn't introduce sin and death into the world but that Yeshua came bringing the message that you're filthy and rotten and belong on the top of a garbage heap is not the message. Now, you will have to stick with me through this series when I say controversial things like that. You can't get tuned out. What he says is, Return to God. Destruction is coming. There's an alternative. The kingdom is available through trust in me. Yeshua's call to to conversion, and literally conversion, was the gospel message. It was the first, it was at first, first priority, a national call 
to Israel as a nation. That is an incredibly important point. The call was first and foremost a national call to Israel. This we see again and again and again and again throughout the prophets, don't we? That they're calling them. We'll also, we'll talk about this over the next couple of weeks. But over and over describes turning to God in word and deed, not making a decision or following some philosophical thought process of believing something that's going to happen. Word and deed. And I just want you to anchor this. Word and deed. Repentance from dead works. I'm really excited to teach next week. I'm excited about this because I think this is important. When we consider Yeshua's teaching, his Sermon on the Mount, his parables, parables, what was the point of those? What was the point of those messages? Well, according to Lutheran theology, the Sermon on the Mount had one purpose. It was to tell you how you can never do any of these things. The things that he's calling you to do, they are he's he's making it harder. Jesus is saying to you, "Look, I tell you, you've heard this, but I tell you this. And what's he saying? Don't even think about it, loser. You couldn't do it if you tried. All you got is me. I had a friend tell me one time, we were having an incredibly good discussion, and I asked him this question. I said, well, well, Jesus gave us like some directives, things that we should actually do in the Sermon on the Mount. He goes, I know, but he did that to tell you how useless your efforts were and how you need grace. And I do need grace, and so do you. And our efforts, if that's defined by some classic uh, modern theological construct, our efforts are bad. Repentance from dead works. I'll tell you about it next week. So according to Calvinist theology, what was the point of the Sermon on the Mount? There was no point because you're pre-chosen. You're predestined. It doesn't matter what you do. That has me freaked out and always has. That doesn't make any sense to me, but Calvinists have a very, very good way of doing that. Now, what about modern, like, uh, uh, Protestantism? Everything that Yeshua said was a call to love, to turn the other cheek, to love your enemy. It's how we, we love. It's about the individual making the world a better place by following Jesus' words. Now, that's good, and that has some merit, but, but... Remember, remember what I told you, or what Scott McKnight told you, the ethic of Jesus, his call to conversion in particular, was directed to a particular people, Israel, in a particular context, the land of Israel at a particular time prior to AD 70. It was a call to inherit the coming what? Now, let's just, let's just be full of controversy today. You want to? It makes it exciting. It keeps everybody awake. Did he really just say... It would be silly, actually, to say that the people in the first century followed Yeshua because they thought he was God. That, too, came later. 
He was correctly viewed in their eyes as God's agent of redemption, the Savior of Israel, the manifestation of the fullness of God brought to earth to bring redemption and deliverance. His very name means God is salvation. Because Yeshua is his nickname, which Yeshua Yeshua means salvation. Yeshua is a nickname for Yehoshua, which means in Hebrew, God is salvation. He was God's agent of redemption, and that's what they saw. And that's why they asked questions like, is now the time you're going to do the kingdom, man? And all of those kingdom promises we talked about two weeks ago, ending exile, gathering the outcasts of Israel, restoring God's house as a house of prayer for all nations, hosting a banquet of banquets. He was going to do all those things. And this, this call of his was a kingdom message to a nation awaiting the kingdom. And his call was kingdom Torah, or as my Ashkenazic brothers love to say, kingdom Torah. Kingdom Torah, in other words, these behaviors, these sermons on the mounts, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to. This is what the kingdom will look like. Start acting like it now. Start preparing for it and doing it now. Do you know the word proleptic? Proleptic, Yeshua's message was a proleptic message. Proleptic means... Seeing a thing before it has actually materialized. The representation of a thing as as existing before it actually does. And we see this proleptic uh, um, viewpoint even in the prayer that we just said. The most famous of prayers. The only prayer Yeshua taught. Et lach menu ten lanu Give us today the bread of tomorrow. Now, that's not the way you've heard it translated, right? Give us today our daily bread, okay? Now, Aaron Eby in a book called Messianic Jewish Prayer has a tremendous um, uh, section on this prayer. And I'm not going to get into all the Greek grammar and all the different words and, and everything, but listen to this. If Yeshua came bringing the kingdom message, the kingdom Torah, the kingdom gospel, a call to act as if the kingdom were in our midst now, and he gives us this prayer, and in the middle of it he says something about the kingdom. Give us today the food we need to eat today. The whole rest of the prayer is like, Kingdom, us, we, our, your kingdom is glory and all these other kinds of things. And somewhere in the middle, we stop and say, can we get some food? (laughs) Here's what it's connected to. The Lord's prayer is the disciples' prayer is the kingdom prayer. And when we say et lachmenu lemachart and lano hayom, give us today our daily bread. Give us today, give us today the bread of tomorrow. We can connect this right here. You ready? Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Luke. Ashrei, 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 mishayochal lechem, lechem b'malut shamayim. That's the connection. 
Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And so Yeshua says, tell God to give us some of it now. To taste the bread of the kingdom today. Could we, God, please prepare our minds for what is coming in our hearts and our words and our deeds? A genuine conversion is connected to the elementary principles. Hebrews tells us these are the things you must know and understand. Repentance. Faith. Instructions about washings, baptisms, the laying on of hands, resurrection, the eternal judgment. Yeshua's call to conversion. Those steps, this decision leads to a complete and total conversion and transformation of your life. And you become someone new. That's why Paul could say things like, I am a new creation in Christ. I'm a new creation in Messiah. It is all done, a way of life in preparation for what's coming, not where you're going. Okay? That's important. Hear that. It's all in preparation for what's coming, not where you're going. This... Richard Rohr, Kevin Daniel over here, uh, runs the counseling center on our property. He's been doing that for a long time. Before him, Matt Goddard, the pastor of this church, counseled thousands and thousands of people through that counseling center. It's a little piece of heaven over there, if anyone ever is in need of counseling. But Kevin, like me, is weird. And he reads a lot of weird things, and he has a lot of weird ideas that are sort of non-traditional. So we share ideas. And one of the things that he sent me was this quote from Richard Rohr, who is, as I recall, a Franciscan monk. Now, I want you to listen to this monk's statement of what has happened with the gospel. The common Christian understanding, it's so nice when I didn't say these things. The common Christian understanding that Jesus came to save us by a cosmic evacuation plan is really very... Oh, wait. Wait a minute. I did these for a reason. (laughs) Did I already have it up there? No, I think I missed one. Sorry, guys. Give me one second. What happened? Uh Uh-oh. This is... This is so embarrassing. I'm sorry. Well, I miss one script. I miss one, but listen to this. The common Christian understanding that Jesus came to save us by a cosmic evacuation plan is really very individualistic, petty, and even egocentric. Do you hear that? Huh? I'm going to say it again and slower. One thing you very rarely hear me ever say is I'm going to talk slower. The common Christian understanding that Jesus came to save us by a cosmic evacuation plan is really very individualistic, petty, and even egocentric. It demands no solidarity with anything except oneself. And then this, also from Richard. Oh, he's a friar, Franciscan friar. We whittled down the great good news down into what Jesus could do for us, personally and privately, rather than celebrating God's invitation to participate in God's universal creative work. That is a home run, Friar Roar. 
you are absolutely ensured a place in the world to come in Messiah Yeshua. And you are empowered in Messiah Yeshua to prepare this world for his return. That's a high calling. It really is. But you didn't just make the decision. You're committing yourself to an action in word and deed. I hope we are. We're trying to. I know. God help us. As a disciple of Yeshua, he tells us, you will start living life as a kingdom-minded disciple. You know, there's this, I I heard this, um, somebody, famous people, and some nervous, like, I'm not even going to do that. That's a waste of time. (laughs) Because here's, here's where I'm going with that. Rather than what we've done is made everything about us and individuals rather than celebrating God's invitation to participate in God's universal creative work. Because here's what God called you to be, God the Father. He called you to be a co-creator. That's very Jewish. I'm sorry. That's a big Jewish idea. God wants me to co-create with Him? Yeah. He wants you to repair this world. It's called Tikkun Olam. T-I-K-K-U-N-O-L-A-M. Tikkun Olam. Repair the world. The world is broken. The world broke when Adam allowed something into this world. And we're not going to fix that. That's not our job. Our job is to prepare the space down here for the one who is going to come and fix it. To live kingdom-minded, operating, living with the full gospel, co-creators. Yeshua gives us these instructions for living. Be a new creation. Transform the complexion of the world. Don't act like everybody else. If someone hits you, just... Well, that's also another message in and of itself. If they want your tunic, give them your cloak or the other way around. I don't know if the tunic's outside the cloak or the cloak, but whatever. I want you to live differently to become disciples, and he asks us to count the cost, which elementary principles takes into account. It's more than a religion. It's more than a decision. It's participating with an ongoing gospel. Until the kingdom and God are understood, there's no place for the ethic of Jesus. And here's the complaint. Rabbi, you've just destroyed the gospel. You just took, like, everything out of it. I am accountable for my sins. What are you talking about? All this national Israel stuff and kingdom focus and removing going to heaven from the story. And for that matter, it sounds really watered down and liberal to me. Jesus talked about judgment, weeping, gnashing of teeth, Gehenna. We'll talk about that too in the context of what he meant by that. Paul said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Amen, brother Shaul. That's also true. And what about Peter? I mean, Peter in Acts 2, he's telling us that these people, when he presented to them the gospel to repent, believe in Jesus, and go to heaven, they were pierced to the heart. Brothers, what are you to do? He said, repent, each of you. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right there, Rabbi, he says, believe and go to heaven. That's not 
what he said. And can I finish? There is no national repentance without individual repentance. I am in no way removing the personal responsibility that you have for your own life as a contributor to the bigger picture of the world and national repentance that God and Yeshua were calling Israel to. Internal repentance results in an external manifestation to live with this this realization and expectation that the kingdom was at hand. You had found the one who was going to bring the kingdom that was supposed to lead you to a total transformation of self and a restoration of your kingdom-minded perspective. It's a little bit complicated, I know. But we were to return. Yeshua was calling them to return to this covenant fidelity, personal responsibility, live out the Torah And here's another thing that McKnight says, which is also very good. The the nation needed to change, but it could only do so when individuals repented of their nation's past, their individual contribution to that past, and walk in the faith of the Yeshua, of what Yeshua envisioned for the people of God. I am in no way removing personal responsibility. I'm not taking the personal part out. It's the first leading to the second. Repent individually and nationally, internally and externally, for the kingdom is on its way. Although conversion was a personal matter, it had a national significance. It involved the recognition of Jesus as the one who was going to fix it, God's agent of redemption. And if you chose to forego the individual process, guess where you don't go? You don't go where the king goes because you didn't follow the king's instruction. You didn't listen to him. You didn't do these things. And the first elementary principle, which we finally get to tomorrow, is, I mean, not tomorrow. Well, we can come back tomorrow if you want. I'm excited. Repentance, 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 repentance from dead works. It's the number one elementary principle. Conclusion, whoa, 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 rabbi. You just spent, I don't know how long, 30 minutes talking about the gospel as it was understood Israel, 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 Jews, Jewish people, national this, national that. Where does the church figure into that? What about the Gentiles? Where's my part of the story, Rabbi? I get it. It's a synagogue. I get it. You're Jewish. That's all fine. Where's my part? That's a good question. What happened is that my part was completely written out historically by shooting the bullseye and drawing the bullseye around it. That didn't happen. And you certainly are not written out of the story either. And here's how this works. A 
A gospel of personal salvation has no use for Israel or the prophesied kingdom. They've been replaced by a different gospel, a different Torah, a different destination and future, a different religion, a different reading of the Bible, and that's not the full gospel. But the authentic full gospel has plenty of room for everybody. Yeshua's message was for everybody. Wow, this is really deep, Rabbi. I already knew that. I know. Listen to me. To those who convert to the kingdom-minded perspective, that's what he was calling us to do. The Gentiles have always been included, and I've already told you this from Acts 2. I want you to listen to Peter speak prophetically as we conclude this. Oh, that's from Ephesians 2. That's not Acts 2. Nope. Man, who did this PowerPoint? This is pitiful. Can I read you something from Acts 2? Perfect. I wasn't even looking and I got to it. I, I mean, this is... And I have no idea what comes after it. This moment in time right here. This is Acts 2. Who was Peter speaking to? Jewish people. There were no Gentiles in this speech. Okay? And what does he say? Well, what he's about to do is he's going to prophesy. Peter's going to say things that he doesn't even know he's saying just yet. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Who's they? The Jewish people who had come to Peter and said, oh my gosh, I hear your story. I recognize it. We missed him. This was the Messiah. This was God's deliverer. This was the redemption of Israel. This is our hope and our future. And they said to Peter, brothers, what are we to do? Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who were far away, as many as God will call to himself. Now, where have we heard that before? Where have we heard it actually came after because Paul said it, but where have we heard this far away language before? We heard it right here in Ephesians 2 when Paul says, Therefore remember that previously you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the people of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world... But now in Messiah Yeshua, you who were previously far away have been brought near by the blood of Messiah, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. What did Peter just say and what did Ephesians just say? He said, you are in the story in a big way, baby. Because you had no connection to the national call of Israel. And now, because of the blood of the chosen one, 
you do. You are part of the story. You are written in. You are called to the same kingdom-minded perspective to which Yeshua called the Jewish people. And what did He say? Where do we see this coming to pass? Where did Yeshua say you're included? In a Gentile centurion who He was far away, but He said, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from where? Far away, the east and the west, and recline. Where are they going to recline? At the kingdom table. With Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Where are they going to do it? In the kingdom of heaven. This is the full gospel. It is for you, your children, and those who are far away, and that's all of us. That's all of us. The kingdom gospel is for everyone. In Romans 1.16, Paul says this, and we close with this scripture. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And there goes that doggone Jew language again. Man, we can't get away from this. It doesn't matter. People get freaked out. It's not a hierarchy. We just said that. We just showed to the Jew and to the Greek we're part of the kingdom promises and the national part of Israel. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, wait a minute. Rabbi, you just said we're not talking about personal salvation. And then this is the thing? This is the closing Scripture? Let's redefine salvation by a more appropriate definition. I use a website called Blue Letter Bible all the time because it has the great Strong's Concordance and there's a lot of links there. There's a, there's a, uh, a tool on the Strong's Concordance that's called the Outline of Biblical Usage and it gives a lot of definitions of terms. Sotaria. Salvation. Sotaria. I love to say it. It's probably because I sang Ocho Candelicas today that I have to say it like that, though, Irvin. This is the definition of salvation from the outline of biblical usage. Future deliverance, the sum of benefits and blessing which the disciples of Messiah, redeemed from all earthly ills, will enjoy after the visible return of Messiah from heaven in the consummated and eternal kingdom of God. That's what salvation is, man. Woo! Sotaria. And with these past few weeks of foundation, before we move into the actual foundations of the elementary principles, that's the gospel. But always remember, it begins and ends with and through Israel and the coming kingdom of God. And to take that away, to try to mask that, replace that, draw a new bullseye, you can't believe and read the same Bible that we read and do that. Israel on some level has been blinded for a time. There's no question. I don't know God's plan. But the gospel, 
the full gospel, the authentic gospel began in Israel with a message for Israel. Repent for the kingdom of God is on the brink of arrival. The blessing has been transferred to all of us, Jew and Gentile. We share it together in Messiah Yeshua. And that is a gospel I can get behind. Shabbat Shalom. We're building the kingdom and thankful that you're a part of that mission. If this teaching inspired you, please consider a financial gift to support the work of Shalom Macon. Visit MaconMessianic.com and click Give Online. May the Lord bless and keep you.